for RDH or warfare merely for the sake of people of another land, however they might sympathize with them. George Canning, the English statesman to whom belonged much of the credit for the constitution of Cadiz, thought out a way to punish the Spanish king for his perfidy. King Ferdinand was planning, with the island of Cuba as a base, to begin a campaign that should return his rebellious American colonies to their allegiance, for they had taken advantage of disturbances in the peninsula to declare their independence. England proposed to the United States that they, the two Anglo-Saxon nations whose ideas of liberty had unsettled Europe and whom the alliance would have attacked had it dared, should unite in a protectorate over the new world. England was to guard the sea and the United States were to furnish the soldiers for any land fighting which might come on their side of the Atlantic. World politics had led the enemies of England to help her revolting colonies. Napoleon's jealousy of Britain had endowed the new nation with the vast Louisiana territory, and European complications saved the United States from the natural consequences of their disastrous war of 1812 which taught them that union was as necessary to preserve their independence as it had been to win it. Canning's project in principle appealed to the North Americans, but the study of it soon showed that Great Britain was selfish in her suggestion. After a generation of fighting, England found herself drained of soldiers and therefore she diplomatically invited the cooperation of her former colonies, but, regardless of any formal arrangement, her navy could be relied on to prevent those who had played her false from transporting large armies across the ocean into the neighborhood of her otherwise defenseless colonies. That was self-preservation. President Monroe's advisors were willing that their country should run some risk on its own account, but they had the traditional American aversion to entangling alliances. So the cabinet counseled that the young nation alone should make itself the protector of the South American republics and drafted the declaration warning the world that aggression against any of the new world democracies would be resented as unfriendliness to the United States. It was the firm attitude of President Monroe that compelled Spain to forego the attempt to reconquer her former colonies, and therefore Mexico and Central and South America owe their existence as republics quite as much to the elder Commonwealth as does Cuba. The American attitude revealed in the Monroe Doctrine was especially obnoxious to the Spaniards in the Philippines but their intemperate denunciations of the policy of America for the Americans served only to spread a knowledge of that doctrine among the people of that little territory which remained to them to misgovern. Secretly there began to be, among the stouter-hearted Filipinos, some who cherished a corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, the Philippines for the Filipinos, thoughts of separation from Spain by means of rebellion by sale and by the assistance of other nations, had been thus put into the heads of the people. These were all changes coming from outside, but it next to be demonstrated that Spain herself did not hold her non-contiguous territories as sacred as she did her home dominions. The sale of Florida suggested that Cuba, Puerto Rico and the Philippines were also available assets, and an offer to sell them was made to the king of France, but this sovereign overreached himself. For thinking to drive a better bargain. He claimed that the low prices were too high. Thereupon the Spanish ambassador, who was not in accord with his unpatriotic instructions, at once withdrew the author and the negotiations terminated. But the Spanish people learned of the proposed sale and their indignation was great. The news spread to the Spaniards in the Philippines. Through their comments the Filipinos realized that the much-talked-of sacred integrity of the Spanish dominions was a meaningless phrase and that the Philippines would not always be Spanish if Spain could get her a price. Gobernador Silao Mercado, Captain Juan, as he was called, made a creditable figure in his office, 
and there used to be in Binana painting of him with his official sword, cocked hat and embroidered blouse. The municipal executive in his time did not always wear the ridiculous combination of European and old Tagalog costumes, namely, a high hat and a short jacket over the floating tails of a pleated shirt, which later undignified the position. He has a notable record for his generosity, the absence of oppression and for the official honesty which distinguished his public service from that of many who held his same office. He did, however, change the tribute list so that his family were no longer Chinese mestizos, but were enrolled as Indians, the wholesale Spanish term for the natives of all Spain's possessions overseas. This, in a way, was compensation it lowered his family's tribute for his having to pay the taxes of all who died in Binan or moved away during his term of office. The municipal captain then was held accountable whether the people could pay or not. No deductions ever being made from the lists. Most gobernador silados found ways to reimburse themselves, but not Mercado. His family, however, were of the fourth generation in the Philippines and he evidently thought that they were entitled to be called Filipinos, a leader in church work also, and several times, Hermano Mayor, of its charitable society. The captain's name appears on a number of lists that have come down from that time as a liberal contributor to various public subscriptions. His wife was equally benevolent. As the records show, Mr. and Mrs. Mercado did not neglect their family, which was rather numerous. Their children were Gavino, Potenciana who never married, Leoncia, Fausto, Barcelisa who became the wife of Hermenegil du Austria, Gabriel, Julian, Gregorio Fernando, Consignero, Patrona who married Gregorio Neri, Thomas a later Mrs. F.D. Guzman, and Cornelia, the belle of the family, who later lived in Batangas. Young Francisco was only eight years old when his father died, but his mother and sister Potenciana looked well after him. First he attended a Binan Latin school, and later he seems to have studied Latin and philosophy in the College of San Jose in Manila. A sister, Patrona, for some years had been a dress goods merchant in nearby Calamba, on an estate that had recently come under the same ownership as Binan. There she later married, and shortly after was widowed. Possibly upon their mother's death, Potenciana and Francisco removed to Calamba, though Patrona died not long after. Her brother and sister continued to make their home there. Francisco, in spite of his youth, became a tenant of the estate as did some others of his family, for their Binan holdings were not large enough to give farms to all Captain One's many sons. The landlords early recognized the agricultural skill of the Mercados by further allotments, as they could bring more land under cultivation. Sometimes Francisco was able to buy the holdings of others who proved less successful in their management and became discouraged. The pioneer farming, clearing the miasmatic forests especially, was dangerous work, and there were a few families that did not buy their land with the lives of some of its members. In 1847 the Mercados had funerals, of brothers and nephews of Francisco, and, chief among them, of that elder sister who had devoted her life to him, Potenciana. She had always prompted and inspired the young man, and Francisco's success in life was largely due to her wise counsels and her devoted encouragement of his industry and ambition. Her thrifty management of the home, too, was sadly missed. A year after his sister Potenciana's death, Francisco Mercado married Teodoro Alonso, a native of Manila, who for several years had been residing with her mother at Calamba. The history of the family of Mrs. Mercado is unfortunately not so easily traced as is that of her husband. 
and what is known is of less simplicity and perhaps of more interest since the mother's influence is greater than the father's, and she was the mother of Jose Rizal, her father, Lorenzo Alberto Alonso born 1790, died 1854, is said to have been very Chinese in appearance, he had a brother who was a priest, and a sister, Isabel, who was quite wealthy, he himself was also well-to-do, their mother, Maria Florentina born 1771, died 1817, was, on her mother's side, of the famous Florentina family of Chinese mestizos originating in Peliwag, Buelacon, and her father was Captain Mariano Alejandro of Binan, Lorenzo Alberto was municipal captain of Binan in 1824, as had been his father, Captain Cipriano Alonso died 1805, in 1797, the grandfather, Captain Gregorio Alonso died 1794, was a native of Quentinbario, and twice, in 1763 and again in 1768, at the head of the Mestizos organization of the Santa Cruz district in Manila, Captain Lorenzo was educated for a surveyor, and his engineering books, some in English and others in French, were preserved in Binantil, upon the death of his son, the family belongings were scattered, he was wealthy, and had invested a considerable sum of money with the American Manila shipping firms of Peel, Hubble and Company and Russell, Sturgis and Company. The family story is that he became acquainted with Brigida de Quintus, Mrs. Rizal's mother, while he was a student in Manila, and that she, being unusually well educated for a girl of those days, helped him with his mathematics. Their acquaintance apparently arose through relationship, both being connected with the Reyes family. They had five children. Narcisa who married Santiago mother, Teodora Mrs. Francisco Rizal Mercado, Gregorio, Manuel and Jose, all were born in Manila, but lived in Calamba, and they used the name Alonso till that general change of names in 1851, with their mother, they adopted the name Rialonga, this latter name has been said to be an allusion to royal blood in the family, but other indications suggest that it might have been a careless mistake made in writing by Rosa Rialonga whose name sometimes appears written as Ridenda. There is a family Redondo Ridenda in its feminine form Alonzo of Ilocano origin, the same stock as their traditions give for Mrs. Rizal's father, some of whose members were to be found in the neighborhood of Binan and Pasay. One member of this family was akin in spirit to Jose Rizal, for he was fined 25,000 pesos by the Supreme Court of the Philippine Islands for contempt of religion. It appears that he put some original comparisons into a petition which sought to obtain justice from an inferior tribunal where, by the omission of the word, not, in copying, the clerk had reversed the court's decision but the judge refused to change the record, Brigida de Quintus's death record, in Calambra 1856, speaks of her as the daughter of Manuel de Quintus and Regina Ocoa, the most obscure part of Rizal's family tree is the Ocoa branch, the family of the maternal grandmother for all the archives, church, land and court, disappeared during the late disturbed conditions of which Cavita was the center, so one can only repeat what has been told by elderly people who have been found reliable in other accounts where the clues they gave could be compared with existing records, the first of the family is said to have been Polycarpio Ocoa, an employee of the Spanish Customs House, Estanilao Manuel Ocoa was his son, with the blood of old Castile mingling with Chinese and Tagalog in his veins, he was part owner of the Hacienda of San Francisco de Malabon. One story says that somewhere in this family was a Mariquita Ocoa, 
of such beauty that she was known in Kavita. Where was her home? As the Sampagata Jasmine of the Parian, or Chinese, quarter. There was a Spanish nobleman also in Kavita in her time who had been deported for political reasons probably for holding liberal opinions and for being thought to be favorable to English ideas. It is said that this particular, K.J. Beard, was a Marquis de Canet, and if so there is ground for the claim that he was of royal blood, at least some of his far-off ancestors had been related to a former ruling family of Spain. Mariquita's mother knew the exile, since, according to the custom in Filipino families, she looked after the business interests of her husband, curious to see the belle of whom he had heard so much. The Marquis made an excuse of doing business with the mother and went to her home on an occasion when he knew that the mother was away. No one else was there to answer his knock and Marikita, busied in making candy, could not in her confusion find a coconut shell to dip water for washing her hands from the large jar, and not to keep the visitor waiting. She answered the door as she was. Not only did her appearance realize the expectations of the Marquis, but the girl seemed equally attractive for her self-possessed manners and lively mind. The nobleman was charmed. On his way home he met a car loaded with coconut dippers and he bought the entire lot and sent it as his first present. After this the exile invented numerous excuses to call, till Marikita's mother finally agreed to his union with her daughter. His political disability made him out of favor with the state church, the only place in which people could be married then. But Marikita became what in English would be called a common law wife. One of their children, Jose had a tobacco factory and a slipper factory in music, Manila, and was the especial protector of his younger sister, Regina, who became the wife of attorney Manuel de Quintus. A sister of Regina was Dida de Castro, who with another sister, Luceria, sold chorizos, sausages or tiradera, taffy candy, the first at a store and the second in their own home, but both in Cavite, according to the variations of one narrative. A different account varies the time and omits the noble ancestor by saying that Regina was married and usually young to Manuel de Quintus to escape the attentions of the Marquis. Another authority claims that Regina was wedded to the lawyer in second marriage, being the widow of Facundo de Leyva, the captain of the ship Hernando Magallanes, whose pilot, by the way, was Andrew Stewart, an Englishman. It is certain that Regina Ocoa was of Spanish, Chinese and Tagalog ancestry and it is recorded that she was the wife of Manuel de Quintus. Here we stop depending on memories, for in the restored burial register of Calamba Church in the entry of the funeral of Brigida de Quintus she is called the daughter of Manuel de Quintus and Regina Ocoa. Manuel de Quintus was an attorney of Manila, graduated from Santa Thomas University, whose family were Chinese mestizos of Pangasinan, the lawyer's father, of the same name had been municipal captain of Lingleyang, and an uncle was leader of the Chinese mestizos in a protest they had made against the arbitrariness of their provincial governor. This petition for redress of grievances is preserved in the Supreme Court archives with Joaquin de Quintus, well and boldly written at the head of the complainants' names, evidence of a culture and a courage that were equally uncommon in those days. Complaints under Spanish rule, no matter how well-founded, meant trouble for the complainants. We must not forget that it was a vastly different thing from signing petitions or adhering to resolutions nowadays. Then the signers risked certainly great annoyance, sometimes imprisonment, and not infrequently death. The home of Quintus had been in San Pedro Macapi at the time of Captain Navales's uprising. 
the so-called American Revolt, in protest against the peninsulars sent out to supersede the Mexican officers who had remained loyal to Spain when the colony of their birth separated itself from the mother country, as little San Pedro Macapi is charged with having originated the conspiracy. It is unlikely that it was concealed from the liberal lawyer, for attorneys were scarcer and held in higher esteem in those days. The conservative element then, as later, did not often let drop any opportunity of purging the community of those who thought for themselves, by condemning them for crime and heard and defended, whether they had been guilty of it or not. All the branches of Mrs. Rizal's family were much richer than the relatives of her husband, there were numerous lawyers and priests among them the old-time proof of social standing and they were influential in the country. There are several names of these related families that belong among the descendants of Lacanla, as traced by Mr. Luther Parker in his study of the Pampangan migration, and color is thereby given, so far as Rizal is concerned, to a proud boast that an old Pampangan lady of this descent makes for her family. She, who is exceedingly well posted upon her ancestry, ends the tracing of her lineage from Lacanla's time by asserting that the blood of that chief flowed in the veins of every Filipino who had the courage to stand forward as the champion of his people from the earliest days to the close of the Spanish regime. Lacanla, of course, belonged to the Mohammedan Sumatrans who emigrated to the Philippines only a few generations before Magellan's discovery. To recall relatives of Mrs. Rizal who were in the professions may help to an understanding of the prominence of the family. Felix Florentino, an uncle, was the first clerk of the Nueva Segovia vegan court. A cousin German, Jose Florentino, was a Philippine deputy in the Spanish Cortes, and a lawyer of note, as was also his brother, Manuel, another relative, Les Mier, was clerk Reyes, of the court of first instance in Manila, the priest of Rosario. Vicar of Batangas Province, Father Leva, was a half-blood relation, and another priestly relative was Mrs. Rizal's paternal uncle, Father Alonso. These were in the earlier days when professional men were scarcer. Father Almeida, of Santa Cruz Church, Manila, and Father Augustin Mendoz, his predecessor in the same church, and one of the sufferers in the Cavite Trouble of 72 a deport were most distantly connected with the Rizal family. Another relative of the Ray's connection, was in the Internal Revenue Service and had charge of Calamba during the latter part of the 18th century. Mrs. Rizal was baptized in Santa Cruz Church, Manila, November 18, 1827, as Teodora Morales Alonso, her godmother being a relative by marriage, Doña Maria Cristina. She was given an exceptionally good fundamental education by her gifted mother, and completed her training in Santa Rosa College, Manila which was in the charge of Filipino sisters. Especially did the religious influence of her schooling manifest itself in her afterlife. Unfortunately there are no records in the institution, because it is said all the members of the order who could read and write were needed for instruction and there was no one competent who had time for clerical work. Brigida de Quintus had removed to the property in Calamba which Lorenzo Alberto had transferred to her. And there as early as 1844 she is first mentioned as Brigida de Quintus, then as Brigida de Alonso, and later as Brigida Rialonda. Chapter Ivy Rizal's early childhood Jose Piero de Asio Rizal Mercado y Alonso Ariela the seventh child of Francisco Engracio Rizal Mercado y Alejandro and his wife, Teodora Morales Alonso Rialonda y Quintus, was born in Calamba, June 19, 1861. He was a typical Filipino, 
for few persons in this land of mixed blood could boast a greater mixture than his. Practically all the ethnic elements, perhaps even the Negrito in the far past, combined in his blood, all his ancestors, except the doubtful strain of the Negrito, had been immigrants to the Philippines, early Malays, and later Sumatrans, Chinese of prehistoric times and the refugees from the Tartar Dominion, and Spaniards of Old Castile and Valencia representatives of all the various peoples who have blended to make the strength of the Philippine race. Shortly before Jose's birth his family had built a pretentious new home in the center of Calambrano lot which Francisco Mercado had inherited from his brother. The house was destroyed before its usefulness had ceased, by the vindictiveness of those who hated the man-child that was born there, and later on the gratitude of a free people held the same spot sacred because there began that life consecrated to the Philippines and finally given for it. After preparing the way for the union of the various disunited Chinese mestizos, Spanish mestizos, and half a hundred dialectically distinguished Indians into the united people of the Philippines. Jose was christened in the nearby church when three days old, and as two out-of-town bands happened to be in Calamba for a local festival, music was a feature of the event. His godfather was Father Pedro Casanas, a Filipino priest of a Calamba family, and the priest who christened him was also a Filipino, Father Rufino Collins. Following is a translation of the record of Rizal's birth and baptism, I the undersigned parish priest of the town of Calamba, certify that from the investigation made with proper authority, for replacing the parish books which were to burn September 28, 1862, to be found in docket number 1 of baptisms, page 49. It appears by the sworn testimony of competent witnesses that Jose Rizal Mercado is the legitimate son, and of lawful wedlock of Don Francisco Rizal Mercado and Doña Teodora Rialogna, having been baptized in this parish on the 22nd day of June in the year 1861, by the parish priest, Ref. Rufino Collins, Ref. Pedro Casanas being his godfather, witness my signature, signed Elio Encio Lopez, Jose Rizal's earliest training recalls the education of William and Alexander von Humboldt. Those two 19th century Germans whose achievements for the prosperity of their fatherland and the advancement of humanity have caused them to be spoken of as the most remarkable pair of brothers that ever lived. He was not physically a strong child, but the direction of his first studies was by an unusually gifted mother, who succeeded, almost without the aid of books, in laying a foundation upon which the man placed an amount of well-mastered knowledge along many different lines that is truly marvelous and this was done in so short a time that its brevity constitutes another wonder. At three he learned his letters, having insisted upon being taught to read and being allowed to share the lessons of an elder sister. Immediately thereafter he was discovered with her storybook, spelling out its words by the aid of the syllabary or caden, which he had propped up before him and was using as one does a dictionary in a foreign language. The little boy spent also much of his time in the church, which was conveniently near. But when the mother suggested that this might be an indication of religious inclination, his prompt response was that he liked to watch the people, to how good purpose the small eyes and ears were used. The true-to-life types of the characters in Nali Me Tanher and El Filibusterismo testified. Three uncles, brothers of the mother, concerned themselves with the intellectual, artistic and physical training of this promising nephew, the youngest, Jose, a teacher looked after the regular lessons, the giant manual developed the physique of the youngster, until he had a supple body of silk and steel and was no longer a sickly lad, 
though he did not entirely lose his somewhat delicate looks. The more scholarly Gregorio saw that the child earned his candy money trying to instill the idea into his mind that it was not the world's way that anything worth having should come without effort, he taught him also the value of rapidity in work, to think for himself, and to observe carefully and to picture what he saw. Sometimes Jose would draw a bird flying without lifting pencil from the paper till the picture was finished, at other times it would be a horse running or a dog in chase but it always must be something of which he had thought himself and the idea must not be overworked, there was no payment for what had been done often before, thus he came to think for himself, ideas were suggested to him indirectly, so he was never a servile copyist, and he acquired the habit of speedy accomplishment, clay at first, then wax, was his favorite play material, from these he modeled birds and butterflies that came ever nearer to the originals in nature as the wise praise of the uncles called his attention to possibilities of improvement and encouraged him to further effort. This was the beginning of his nature study. Jose had a pony and used to take long rides through all the surrounding country, so rich in picturesque scenery. Besides these horseback expeditions were excursions afoot, on the latter his companion was his big black dog, Usman. His father pretended to be fearful of some accident if dog and pony went together. So the boy had to choose between these favorites, and alternated walking and riding, just as Mr. Mercado had planned he should. The long pedestrian excursions of his European life, though spoken of as German and English habits, were merely continuations of this childhood custom. There were other playmates besides the dog and the horse, especially doves that lived in several houses about the Mercado home and the lad was friend and defender of all the animals, birds, and even insects in the neighborhood. Had his childish sympathies been respected the family would have been strictly vegetarian in their diet. At times Jose was permitted to spend the night in one of the curious little straw huts which La Laguna farmers put up during the harvest season, and the myths and legends of the region which he then heard interested him and were later made good use of in his writings. Sleight of hand tricks were our favorite amusement and he developed a dexterity which mystified the simple folk of the country. This diversion, and his proficiency in it, gave rise to that mysterious soul with which he was regarded by the common people of his home region, they ascribed to him supernatural powers, and refused to believe that he was really dead even after the tragedy of Pagambayan. Entertainment of the neighbors with magic lantern exhibitions was another frequent amusement, an ordinary lamp throwing its light on a common sheet serving as a screen. Jose's supple fingers twisted themselves into fantastic shapes, the enlarged shadows of which on the curtain bore resemblance to animals, and paper accessories were worked into very and enlarged the repertoire of action figures. The youthful showman was quite successful in catering to the public taste, and the knowledge he then gained proved valuable later in enabling him to approach his countrymen with books that held their attention and gave him the opportunity to tell them of shortcomings which it was necessary that they should correct. Almost from babyhood he had a grown-up way about him, a sort of dignity that seemed to make him realize and respect the rights of others and unconsciously disposed his elders to reason with him, rather than scold him for his slight offenses. This habit grew, as reprimands were needed but once, and his grave promises of better behavior were faithfully kept when the explanation of why his conduct was wrong was once made clear to him. So the child came to be not an unwelcome companion even for adults for he respected their moods and was never troublesome. A big influence in the formation of the child's character was his association with the parish priest of Calamba, 
Father Leoncio Lopez, the Calamba Church and Convento, which were located across the way from the Rizal home, were constructed after the Great Earthquake of 1863, which demolished so many edifices throughout the central part of the Philippines. The curate of Calamba had a strong personality and was notable among the Filipino secular clergy of that day when responsibility had developed many creditable figures. An English writer of long residence in the Philippines, John Foreman, in his book on the Philippine Islands, describes how his first meeting with this priest impressed him, and tells us that subsequent acquaintance confirmed the early favorable opinion of one whom he considered remarkable for broad intelligence and sanity of view. Father Leoncia never deceived himself and his judgment was sound and clear, even when against the opinions and persons of whom he would have preferred to think differently, probably Jose, through the priest's fondness for children and because he was well behaved and the son of friendly neighbors, was at first tolerated about the convento, the Philippine name for the priest's residence, but soon he became a welcome visitor for his own sake. He never disturbed the priest's meditations when the old clergyman was studying out some difficult question, but was a keen observer, apparently none the less curious for his respectful reserve. Father Leoncia may have forgotten the age of his listener, or possibly was only thinking aloud, but he spoke of those matters which interested all thinking Filipinos and found a sympathetic, eager audience in the little boy, who at least gave close heed if he had at first no valuable comments to offer. In time the child came to ask questions, and they were so sensible that careful explanation was given, and questions were not dismissed with the statement that these things were for grown UPS, a statement which so often repels the childish zeal for knowledge. Not many mature people in those days held so serious converse as the priest and his child friend, for fear of being overheard and reported, a danger which even then existed in the Philippines that the old Filipino priest of Rizal's novels owed something to the author's recollections of Father Leoncia is suggested by a chapter in Nali Me Tanher, Ibarra, viewing Manila by moonlight on the first night after his return from Europe, recalls old memories and makes mention of the neighborhood of the botanical garden, just beyond which the friend and mentor of his youth had died. Father Leoncia Lopez died in Col Concepcion in that vicinity which would seem to identify him in connection with that scene in the book, rather than numerous others whose names have been sometimes suggested, to writings of Rizal recall thoughts of his youthful days, one tells how he used to wander down along the lake shore and, looking across the waters, wonder about the people on the other side, did they, too, he questioned, suffer injustice as the people of his hometown did, was the whip there used as freely, carelessly and unmercifully by the authorities, had men and women also to be servile and hypocrites to live in peace over there, but among these thoughts, never once did it occur to him that at no distant day the conditions would be changed and, under a government that safeguarded the personal rights of the humblest of its citizens, the region that evoked his childhood wondering was to become part of a province bearing his own name in honor of.